everyone, Charlotte here. Quick note before we get started on the episode. My internet absolutely lost it during our interview with the lovely Adeline Grace. The joys and perks of flat sharing in London, hey? Rather than waste Adeline's time, Lauren carried on like a trooper, so you'll hear me pop in and out rather than a planned solo Lauren episode. Thanks to everyone for their patience, especially Adeline. Hi, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Lauren. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demith Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we straddle the veil between worlds. We taste poison berries. And we speak to Adeline Grace about their novel, Belladonna. Hello, Adeline, and thank you so much for joining us. Happy Spooktober. This is the perfect novel for the spooky season and we thoroughly, thoroughly devoured it. Before we get started, please could you tell our listeners about yourself? Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, I am Adeline Grace. I am the author of Belladonna. It is my third book out, so I do have another duology. It's All the Stars and Teeth and All the Tides of Fate. I live in San Diego, California with two dogs who are as adorable as they are chaotic. And I love anime and video games and long walks on the beach. And what kind of books do you like to read? We always find this question really fascinating. I love everything fantastical first and foremost, I think is my is my go-to. Anything magical, anything that transports me into kind of another world. Um, I love middle grade. I love fun and fantastical middle grade, especially like Nevermore. That series is my absolute favorite fantasy romance for YA. And it's funny because for adult I do love things that are very atmospheric and very fantastical as well. But also I love just plain old romance, especially contemporary romance. I think it's so much fun and I love listening to them on audiobooks. I have only recently gotten into the habit of doing it with my headphones on after, you know, some awkward encounters as I'm taking my dogs for a walk and suddenly certain scenes start playing out loud and I wasn't expecting them. (laughs) (laughs) I think contemporary romance is is getting quite good at the minute and there seems to be a real surge of it. Like it's being championed in the way that we would want it to be. It's not so much of a shameful thing and like it's kind of like a woman's thing. Romance is becoming quite a big thing now so... It was so frustrating how long it's taken because, I mean, it is the highest performing, highest grossing genre out there. And there's always been this, like, misconception of, oh, that's just, like, those girly books, blah, blah, blah. So I'm really glad that it is starting to get some of the respect and accolades that it has long, long since deserved. Especially, like, those slow burn romances. There's such a skill in writing it. It's just, it's incredible. Yeah, and they have to, those authors have to be so fast too because readers are fanatical. And if you find like a romance author that you love, you want to just devour everything ever written by them. So they're writing so fast, like major props to romance authors because I cannot even imagine. Can we take a second to talk about the two covers that we have seen? Who were your designers? And I can't tell which one I prefer, to be honest. I can't tell which one I prefer either. I love them so much. So we have different designers versus artists. So the U.S. designer is um, Jenny Kimura, 
And then the artist is Elena Mosky. I might be mispronouncing some of these names, so I'm really sorry. I, I only ever see them written. I haven't heard them pronounced. Um, in the UK, we have Tegan White as the artist and then Lydia Blag- Blagadin? Blagadin, I believe, as the designer. Um, and they have done such a phenomenal job. Um, I am very, very happy with these covers. I feel like I have been just eternally blessed by the cover gods. So where did the inspiration for Belladonna actually come from? I have been working on Belladonna mentally for about 10 years now. It initially came to me when I was working in live theater um, and I was working up in the catwalk on the spotlights for one show. And when you're up there, you're wearing all black. It's very like nobody knows that you're up there. They don't really see you. And I would find my mind starting to wander, especially, you know, after eight shows a week, you kind of start to know the show like the back of your hand and you're just kind of off mentally in another world for a lot of it. And I was looking down at the audience one day and I was just like, well, what would happen if I fell? Like, would would I die? Would somebody what if what if I became a ghost and somebody saw me? I was just having all these weird thoughts. And I think part of it too was probably that um, the show that we were doing was The Secret Garden, which I put a lot of nods to in Belladonna. And there was like this ghost in the background, just like singing this spooky song as I was thinking this. And I was like, oh, that seems cool. And I had the initial spark then. But over the years, Belladonna has like changed drastically. There was a point where I was considering maybe making it a middle grade story. There was one point where death was not really much of a character at all, let alone a romantic interest. Um, And over the years, it's just kind of like developing it and leaning into the stories I wanted to tell and what I loved. And I was that kid who like grew up where my relaxing music was Sweeney Todd. And I liked all things like dark and kind of weird and eerie So just really leaning into that and just writing something that made me happy um, ultimately led to Belladonna as it is now and figuring out the actual story there and the romance there. And I don't even know that I initially went into it knowing that it was a murder mystery. I just had like this element of like, oh, this would be cool if we did this and kind of poked around trying it out. And then it, you know, it definitely developed over different versions of the story into this kind of more hardcore mystery and this this very prominent dark forbidden romance so it was just a long accumulation of different ideas over the years to get to the story as it is now we spoke to another author not that long ago and she also had the secret garden as as an inspiration and she also really liked Sweeney Todd it's quite interesting that you both (laughs) had those two influences and written books that we've both really liked, but they're so different in so many ways. That's so funny. What author was that? Kaylin Bayron. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should be friends. I I have not met them, but I know of them. She was someone who knew The Secret Garden. And I think actually me and Charlotte both sort of have watched it as a kid as well. Of that age. I have to admit, I... I have not read The Secret Garden. I only know the musical adaptation, so I'm like a fake fan. But I I really enjoyed the musical adaptation, but kind of like part of why I wrote Belladonna was because with the musical adaptation, I was very confused and conflicted. Like I wanted it to lean darker 
and it had like this like these hints of darkness with the ghosts and with some of like the more mysterious elements but it never really leaned into that and was like a very sweet musical and I was like this is just too sweet to me what if we added murder yeah I love the fact that you went dark on this Orphaned as a baby, 19-year-old Signa has been raised by a string of guardians, each more interested in her wealth than her well-being, and each has met an untimely end. Her remaining relatives are the elusive Hawthorns, an eccentric family living at Thorn Grove, an estate both glittering and gloomy. Its patriarch mourns his late wife through wild parties, while his son grapples for control of the family's waning reputation and his daughter suffers from a mysterious illness. But when their mother's restless spirit appears claiming she was poisoned, Signa realises that the family she depends on could be in grave danger and enlists the help of a surly stable boy to hunt down the killer. Signa's best chance of uncovering the murderer, though, is an alliance with Death himself, a fascinating, dangerous shadow who has never been far from her side. Though he's made her life a living hell, Death shows Signa that their growing connection may be more powerful and more irresistible than she ever dared imagine. The main character is Signa. Where did that name come from? Because it's very unique. Yeah, um, it's funny. You know, some characters I go into like having to research their names very heavily to find just the right one. And then there are others who just kind of name themselves. And Signa was very much one of those. I have zero idea how I came up with her name. I don't know that I've ever heard the name Signa before. I wish I had like a cooler story. I don't know. She's just one of the characters who popped into my head more formed than (laughs) a lot of other characters. And I just knew who she was to begin with. I think for me, though, like names, the sound of them is very important. So Cigna is kind of a, a more unique, a more interesting kind of quirky name in my head where, you know, I look back at some of my other books and the name Amora from All the Stars and Teeth sounds very regal. And Ferric sounds a little bit odd and quirky where Vitea or Blythe from Belladonna have more of a bite to them. And they are both characters who are a little bit more biting. So for me, it's just it's very important how the names kind of sound and the the feeling that they give off. But I have no idea how I came up with Cigna's name. Well, like we said, it's quite unique. And I've never I don't think I've ever read a book with that name before. So it does stick in your brain which is very good for for a book, right? Because you want to think about these characters long after you've put the book down. Right. So do you know of there being a suspicion around people with different coloured eyes in the past? You know, I, I learned that vaguely afterwards, but no, I didn't know that going into it. I just wanted Signa to have some sort of visual representation for her interesting eyes. Like they are very unique eyes that can see sort of different things. And also, selfishly, I wanted to give her some sort of visual reference for fan art and cosplay to where when we see them, we know who it is. So that has always been something I've tried to do with my main characters, but definitely leaned into it more with Belladonna. Um, So yeah, people ask me all the time why her eyes are different. And it's just, you know, people, it's a normal thing. Like I can point to many people I know personally in my life who have two different color eyes, but I just wanted to give her that sort of visual 
reference to point to. I think that's really cool. I don't think I've ever seen it mentioned in a book before. Yeah, I, you know, I remember growing up reading about different colored eyes and stories like a girl with purple eyes and it was so interesting and so unique and I always loved that stuff but I feel like we kind of leaned away from it like oh that's too that's too much like people are gonna think that's too fantastical but I love stuff like that so death nicknames Signa little bird is there any significance in that name you know for me I think that it is just a matter of how he views her in the beginning to what she ultimately becomes. It ties into her character arc very well. Cigna's whole thing is that she is trying to figure out the life that she wants to live. She's trying to like break free from all these constraints. And, you know, she has been led to believe that there is one path and one path alone. And if she debuts into society and she finds this wonderful husband and has all, like all these tea parties with friends like that is going to make her happy but she feels very drawn to this sort of darker side of her the side that is connected to death and ultimately her reaper powers so he calls her little bird and then towards the end there's this quote of like spread your wings and oh how we'll fly where she is like breaking free from those constraints now and becoming the person that she has always wanted to be. So I feel like the nickname, without getting too spoilery, it just ties into her character arc very, very well. I have no shame in admitting that it did get me a little bit worked up. All my shameful secrets <laughs> coming out now. But I text Charlotte before I finished the book and I was like, you know how we can tell each other anything? Well, this line really did it for me. Emphasis on the fact I hadn't finished it yet because obviously <laughs> things changed as I got through it. And it's a bit on page 13 where he said, your name is no cursed little bird. I just like the taste of it. I was like, oh my God, if a man said that to me, I think I'd be in a puddle, but like, that's it. I worry <laughs> I about what that the... says about me. No, well, I think that's part of like what Cigna's going through as well. Like she doesn't want to like death. She hates him, you know, in the beginning. And she's like why why am I drawn to this guy and he says these things that also you know have her in a little bit of a puddle she's like no but I shouldn't be because he is death like I hate him I should hate him so throughout the book Cigna references a book so does I assume books like this did exist but did specifically the book that she mentions A Lady's Guide to Beauty and Etiquette did that exist I don't know that it existed under that specific name. So like you said, books like this did exist and I did pull rules from them uh, to create the one that Cigna is referencing. So it's so ridiculous. Like at one point Cigna is figuring out if she should like have a handshake, which is also I think pretty rare for women during that time. So I altered things a little bit, but it's like you should shake hands with just the right cordial amount of pressure and Signa in her head is like, what is what is a cordial amount of pressure? Like, what is that too hard? Is Am I doing it too soft? And I think that, it, I mean, I know it is very much a part of that time where they had all these rules like that or like how you should hold your fan or all these different things. Um, so while that book specifically is not real, it is pulled directly from other books that were real during that time. I wrote quite early on in my notes. I'm trying to find the particular thing where I said, like, I would be sick. I would be so over that book. <laughs> and I wrote it quite quick, well, quite early on when she sort of mentions it. And it's like, this, this would start to get on my nerves. Like, how is she? How is she okay with this book? Like, 
I'd want to throw out the window or something. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's part of that time where it's just so normalized, but also that's part of her arc too, of just realizing that she doesn't want to follow all these things. Like if, if that is what it will take to get this path that she believes she wanted, does she really want to go down that path? Oh, here we go. Page 239. How is Signa not over the etiquette rules? <laughs> I would have. Yeah. We learn pretty early on about the existence of these poison berries called belladonna. So what made you pick these over other poisons since other sort of poisonous things are mentioned in the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that for me, belladonna just felt like a very natural fit. Um, it is beautiful and it is known to be beautiful. It also in what is it? I think Italian means like beautiful woman. So it it is known to be this thing that is as beautiful as it is deadly. And that for me kind of fits very well with Belladonna as a whole, as a book. Um, it is a deadly world. They're trying to solve a murder, but simultaneously it's very gorgeous and lush and they're having all these like extravagant, lovely parties. So it just, it felt like the most natural fit did you have to research much about sort of plants and poisons for for Belladonna? So we know that there's a sequel that is in in the works now. So did you have to do much research about plants and poisons for both of these books? Yeah, um, for Belladonna, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't go into this knowing anything about Belladonna necessarily or how to cure Belladonna poisoning anything like that. So everything I did have to research. Um, for Foxglove, it's interesting because Foxglove is actually the name of Cigna's family's home that we see in the prologue of Belladonna. It's not dealing so much with Foxglove poisoning in that book necessarily, but I still did have to research different forms of poison for that book as well. Yeah, I, I promise I don't just have like this encyclopedia of how to like kill people with different poisons naturally in my head I, I do have to look it up <laughs> would people be worried if they saw your internet search history oh my gosh 100 and it didn't even start with this book like with my previous book I had to figure out dismemberment and what would happen like what happens with an arm once it's cut off from the body and how long does it take to for the blood to congeal and stuff like that. Yeah, my internet search history is a disaster. I am certainly on multiple lists somewhere. Well, let's hope your boyfriend doesn't go missing anytime soon. <laughs> oh, gosh, I know. So Signa is orphaned as a baby, and she's rather unlucky in that each guardian that she has meets a really unfortunate, untimely death. And she's met with suspicion from those in the town because of this. Do you think she would have ever considered just running away? Probably. It probably would have passed her mind, although I don't know that it would have necessarily been a better option because especially during this is a Victorian inspired setting. And I say the word inspired very intentionally because I do change some things, um, but it is inspired by the Victorian era. And that was not a, not a great period, especially for the non-wealthy people of society and if she had ran away, she wouldn't have any access to her inheritance. She wouldn't have access to anything and would have ended up, you know, probably on the street somewhere or who knows. And it wouldn't have been a very great 
life for her. So I think that sticking it out was probably her best option. I think so. So after the death of one of her guardians, like the last one sort of at the beginning, Signa gets taken to be the ward of her distant relative. Her escort Silas and and Signa find themselves in a compartment on a train going to them. And in the train compartment, there are some sweets and cakes. What would your ideal thing be? <laughs> I love anything custardy or like, I don't know if there was bread pudding, but if there was like a bread pudding, anything like thick and sweet and anything with some sort of custard would have been my jam 100%. And one conversation that I really liked in the book is after Signa has tea with some friends and Death is really confused and he doesn't understand why if she wants to eat, she didn't. And he was really petty when they argued and to end it, he just threw a scone in her mouth. Was that as fun for you to write as it was to read? Yes, and it it ties back to Signa's thing with that etiquette book of like, oh, you should only eat this amount, you should eat it in this order and blah, 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 blah. And death is very much a foil to that. He's the he's the counter to that. And he's just like, well, if you want something, why don't you just do it? Like, why does everything have to be this? Why does everything have to be a thing? You know, it, that scene was so much fun to write. I didn't know because sometimes you write things and you're like, oh, is that is that too cheesy? Is that too corny? Is somebody going to like Is my editor going to be like Adeline, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> I will say I love my editor, so I don't I don't actually think that she would say that. But in your head, you're like, is Goodreads going to say something about this? I thought it was adorable where he just like like she's talking and he just throws the scone in her mouth, one, to shut her up and two, because it's just like you wanted this like here, take it. But death is very he's very sassy. He has quite the attitude so it just felt very natural for his character. And yes, it was very fun for me to write. Oh, I'm so here for a sassy character. <laughs> so the Hawthorns throw parties and balls. And at one point, Signa wears a dress that she's actually gifted. Is the deep red gown that Signa wears the ball that color to kind of signify the berries? Or is it red for danger? Or is it because it's such a contrast to the kind of pastel dresses that Marjorie wants to put her in? Because Cygna seems much more attracted to the deeper, richer colors. Yeah, it's exactly that. It is kind of her first step of accepting this alternate side of her and not trying to fit in with society and what other people want for her. And to take the step of, oh, no, like, I like this. This is something I like. And it feels the most natural to me. And it is more of her leaning into that. I bet wearing red is not in that etiquette book. <laughs> it's funny, like looking up dresses from that time, some of them are certainly very, very bold colors and so gorgeous. For the most part, you know, a lot of women were dressed in softer colors, buttercreams and stuff like that. Um, but they did have these rich gowns, but for the purposes of Cygna's character, it is very much what you said of like Marjorie's trying to dress her one way that like fits with the season, but she sees this other thing over here and she's drawn to that. So finally, although it was gifted to her, it just, it feels the most natural to her wearing it. She feels very confident in a way that she has not necessarily felt before. 
Cygna seems to be the only person who can see death while alive. And she fears death, but at points she takes the wearies in order to call him to her. So without giving spoilers, why would she do this if she claims she wants to get away from him? (laughs) Uh, Well, in the beginning, she wants to kill him. So (laughs) that is her ultimate goal. She takes the berries to summon him and try to get rid of him. Obviously, that doesn't work. He is death and he finds it hilarious. Um, But I think ultimately there's more than she's even really giving herself or she's even letting herself acknowledge. And that is that she is drawn to it, drawn to him and this side of her that is connected to death in a way that she can't necessarily fathom or figure out why or even understand. So it's, yeah, it's a great question. (laughs) I think that as you read the book, there's definitely answers to that. But I think ultimately it is just her trying to figure out why she's drawn to him. Like it's, she wants to kill him in the beginning. And yet, and this is not necessarily a spoiler because it happens in chapter one, but she, before she summons him, she fixes her hair. So she has this mental thought where she's like, I'm going to kill this guy. And then she fixes her hair. So she's very drawn to him, even if she won't let herself admit it. I think sometimes, though, as women, we do do that. Like, we might see someone that we really don't like. It's like, oh, let me do this. Like, let me wear the bright lipstick. Let me look good to see this person that I really can't stand. And you just you don't know why you do it, but you just do. Mm hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure men don't do this. They probably do. They wouldn't admit it. Fixing their hair. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) this is the point of the episode where if you've started seeing spirits but haven't spoken to death yet you should stop listening come back later once you've tasted the berries as we're about to ask questions regarding important plot points and the ending so I didn't ask you this before we talked about your the inspiration for belladonna and where Signa's name came from but I really want to know where your inspiration for death as a character came from. And kind of death is something that appears in in fiction in so many different forms. And there are a few influences that I thought I might be able to see in there. But I'm just curious about um your kind of your take on it. Yeah, I, I tried not to pull any direct influences from him, and it was more of like the question. Or the fact that, you know, death is universal. It is something that happens to everyone, everything. And for the most part, in media especially, it is viewed as this very dark creature, this dark thing that happens. Or even in real life, you know, it is the most awful thing that so many people believe can happen to you. And... There is that side of it. You know, death is sometimes this very destructive force. Also, sometimes it is softer. It is, you know, a quiet moment surrounded by family and by loved ones. It it does not always have this giant destructive force. Um, so I just kind of wanted to create this character who mirrored that, you know, he does have these extraordinary powers that are very terrifying in these moments where he very intentionally is like, ha ha ha, look at me, I'm scary. Um, but also he has the side of him that is like, no, like what I do as a reaper 
can be good, you know, like without death, life would itself would be very different. Like people would live life in a very different way. You know, you wouldn't have this if people didn't die. So it it was just kind of posing that question and those different sides of death to create this character who's a little bit more nuanced than like the the scythe holding reaper that media typically portrays but yeah like you said there are so many depictions of death personified throughout books and tv and some of them are super excellent but i tried not to lean into any one of those and i i kind of just like tunnel visioned my brain of like don't focus on any of those outside influence like forget them all and just create this character that you want to create so I was sort of thinking about Neil Gaiman, but maybe that's because I've been watching Sandman. But his depiction of death is something that I really like. And the idea that it's not always something horrible and it's this, it can be this nicer presence that's there for everyone. Mm-hmm. So I sort of got those vibes, but in a really, really positive way. Yeah, also, I actually, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say also on page 257, there's a line, I, I this is sort of signals in a monologue where she says death was the farrier of souls he was not a demon or a monster but the one who guided wayward spirits and that sort of made me think of like hermes from greek mythology as well and this kind mm. of not he's not seen as being evil in the way that people saw hades as this sort of like bad thing but he was the one who would ferry ferry the souls yeah that's super interesting especially the the neil gaiman one it's funny because when i was on tour for Belladonna, that is when I watched The Sandman because it recently came out. So I was on my flights and I had it like downloaded onto my iPad and I was watching it and I agree. Like it is a very, there are definitely some, I would say like a mix of dream and death is like a, like a, probably a more accurate portrayal of the death from Belladonna. But like I loved how death in The Sandman was much softer and a very, very cool character. I don't know how I felt about the show. Ultimately, it was very interesting. I still haven't finished it yet, um, but I would love to see just more if they do another season. I'd love to see more of death. Death is very cool in the comics as well. There's a couple of mm-hmm. like just for, for any listeners out there who don't know, there are some just death related comics. And it's it's a character that I I I took a lot of sadness from some of the lines in the Sam in the death comics. But I really liked the idea of someone nice there to to greet you Mm -hmm. and also when Signa asks death now going back to Belladonna about something that he likes page 262 death likes animals who'd have thought it's just (laughs) it's just so nice and say this sounds this is gonna sound ridiculous makes him sound human but it it makes him more relatable I guess for Signa rather than being Mm -hmm. this big scary sort of thing she doesn't understand it's like oh he likes animals I like animals. We can relate to that. And it's, it's really cute. Yeah. It's definitely one of his, his like beginning soft, cute moments that I really enjoyed putting in there. And it came from, you know, there's a lot of beliefs that if spirits do exist in the world or ghosts or whatever you want to call them, uh, the animals can see them. Cause sometimes you'll just see like an animal staring off at something totally random. A lot of people believe that. So that's where that came from. One of my cats does that and I wonder who died where I lived because she will <laughs> literally stare 
Like she's got these big starey eyes, not the one that's yeah. been sort of wandering around here annoying us, but she's got these big starey eyes and she'll just stare at nothing. And it's like, what are you seeing? <laughs> what are you seeing that we are not seeing? Who knows? And another thing that I thought was quite interesting as well. So on page 328, Death talks about how the afterlife is his domain and he takes he takes care of his people. And it's no easy decision, but I do not welcome those who will taint my home. I claim those souls for myself and I get rid of them. For them, there will be no afterlife. There will be nothing. And I quite liked that idea. It's kind of bad in a way that there's no redemption for some people, but I sort of liked it. Yeah, I thought it was fun. I mean, for the most part, Death is a pretty fair character. I think that his morals get a little bit skewed when it comes to Signa, especially. That's funny. We're talking about death with morals, but <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I think for the most part, he'd be a pretty good judge of, you know, should I let this person into into the after, into my domain that I am like responsible for taking care of. But yeah, I mean, just like how tragic would it be? if there's this afterlife with all these different possibilities, because I, that was important to me too. Of like, there's all these different beliefs of what happens after death. There's a belief that, you know, you go to heaven or hell. There's a belief in reincarnation. There's the belief in nothingness and just incorporating as many of those as possible into this world. I thought was, that was very important to me. So like, if somebody goes into the after he's responsible for it, there's the option for them to reincarnate. And if he doesn't want somebody to come into that domain, there is the absolute nothingness. So what you said about death being sassy, I just like the fact as well that he would deliberately avoid going the home effectively because <laughs> he wanted to avoid Signa's mom. So she kept asking me about you. It was so annoying. Like I'd rather not. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was hilarious. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, he's he's really cute, and I can imagine like he would be drawn to her parents because he's so curious about Signa. That they would just like always see him lurking, probably, and like try to talk to him. So he does it to himself, but at the same time, <laughs> he just doesn't want to go over there. In some ways, he's sort of like a teenage boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably so different because he says about how long he'd been waiting for her because he'd never felt these things before. Like, as people, we usually get over how to deal with crushes and stuff when we're teenagers for the most part but if he's never been through this this is kind of like his first big teenage crush and he's not handling it very well <laughs> no she's the first person he's ever been able to touch without killing or like communicate with directly for extended periods of time so it is all very new to him even though he is this ancient being Signa is somebody he's been waiting for forever. Not necessarily that it's her, but the fact that there is somebody now who exists in this world who he can communicate with. And he is, of course, super, super drawn to her because of that and wants to know everything to possibly know about her. And she's hot. Like from the artwork <laughs> I've seen of her, she's pretty hot. So you can't believe Yeah, I'm sure him. that helps. <laughs> So I got about halfway through the book and I started getting on my boyfriend's nerves. I was like, oh my God, this book is amazing. I'm really, really enjoying this. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I was like, if she doesn't wrap this up by the end and I have to wait for book two for the conclusion, there's going to be real problems. So thank you for not letting that happen. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I, I don't know how I'd have been able to cope, honestly. Like, I loved this book so much. 
at the risk of fangirling. I loved this book <laughs> so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's so fun to get to talk spoilers with people who've read the book. Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot more coming. <laughs> Signa can see spirits, and once she moves into Thorn Grove, on her first night she meets Lillian. I mean, what a way to be welcomed, welcomed by the, the house spirit. And Lillian is the not long deceased matriarch of the house. Lillian's spirit tells Signa to visit her garden. But why had the garden been locked up after she died? Yeah, I had it. I envisioned Elijah locking it up because it just was so painful for him. Um, he, I mean, everybody mourns in their own way. And Elijah's way was to, you know, throw himself into all these different things and throw himself into these lavish parties and try to forget as much as he possibly could Lillian's existence. So he shut the garden, didn't want anybody going in there, didn't want himself going in there. That way doesn't ultimately end up working out for him, especially when he believes that she's still there, you know, correctly believes that her spirit is still there haunting him. But yeah, it was just because he's grieving, you know, he, he just didn't want to see it. He didn't want to deal with it. And is there a significance in Signa picking Lillian's horse? Because she's quite insistent that she wants to ride this this horse. Yeah, I think the significance or how I was envisioning it is just that she is being she's being drawn to Lillian. She's being drawn to the spirit. She's being drawn to this cause to save Blythe and to connect with her reaper powers for the first time. So having her kind of drawn to Lillian's horse, Mitra, was just another way of pulling Signa deeper into that world. So death helps Signa to enter the locked garden and Signa works out that Lillian had been poisoned and she works out that Lillian's daughter Blythe is also currently being poisoned. Why do you think no doctor would have thought of that? Is it because it's something, it's just something a bit different, like because it's Belladonna poisoning? I think that there's two two reasons and I didn't I mean there was no chance to go deep into this within the story but one so many women when you go to the doctor and you are like talking about health issues you just get passed off of like oh whatever it's fine and of course Blythe is literally dying so I don't know that it was necessarily that especially once they started seeing the symptoms like probably in the beginning there was some of that but alternatively, I imagine Percy paying them off. Um, I imagined like the doctors kind of they do have a better idea what might be going on. But for one reason or another, like even if Percy was doing it discreetly, like, hey, we don't want people to worry. We don't want like I don't want the house to go into chaos. Uh, here's some money. Shut your mouth. Like however he wanted to do it, I that probably happened. I don't go and I don't talk about it in the book just because there's never really a good hmm. point to do it. But that probably happened. Well, that's why we get to ask you these questions now, and that's yeah. why it's <laughs> quite good. That would make a lot of sense actually, because he could do it in a way that doesn't look suspicious. Mm-hmm. It can be sort of in society, yeah, very proper. Impor- yeah, right. Is mm-hmm. All about being proper, isn't he? So, yep. I can actually, I can imagine Percy going and do that and doing that. And Percy's 
really suspicious towards Signa and she seems quite surprised. But as a reader, we can kind of see why. She's come along, she's the only person suggesting poisoning and saying she can taste it, but it doesn't really affect her. And then Blythe initially gets worse. So forgetting the fact for a second that Percy is bad, do you think Signa's <laughs> being quite naive to think that people might not suspect her? I think it's more like she finally felt like she was making a connection with people and making a connection with Percy. This just happened, you know, after they had this moment where he was trying to teach her how to dance and they've been like joking around and she felt like they were really bonding. And then to have him basically be like, well, what if it's you? I think was just probably very jarring for her and kind of this moment of just sadness and like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're not actually as close as I I thought we were. I'm just trying to help, but now I have to, like, there's somebody who thinks I'm bad again. I think it just brought up a lot of different emotions for her because everybody all of her life has believed that about her, that she is is bad, you know, that death follows her. Um, and I think it was just one more moment of that that felt very jarring and very sad. I mean, most of these people did have a point. <laughs> Death does follow her. <laughs> Why do you think Percy would? Going back to the fact, obviously, we know that that Percy is 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 not is not good. Why do you think he would say these things to her? Because he knows he knows that it's it's not Signa, and there were problems way before she came. Why do you think he would say these things to her after you sort of rightly said that they were beginning to bond? Mm-hmm. It seems a bit dickish. I think just to, well, yeah, but he is. <laughs> I think that it's just him trying to throw suspicion off himself, you know, and he's also getting worked up because here comes this person, here comes this this girl who he's never met before, who has figured out very quickly the secret that he's been trying to hide, and she's getting closer and closer to discovering what is happening and closer to discovering that it's him so he's just trying to deflect i quite liked their relationship (laughs) sorry well i mean you didn't do it percy did it (laughs) i guess but it's just between her and blythe and him being able to bond with blythe as she got better it really seemed like things were getting a bit better for percy or she his dad is is incredibly shitty to him in many ways but i felt like oh this this is quite nice a little threesome and then i didn't it didn't <laughs> last in some ways signet is so astute with things that she does and she seems to get more astute as the book goes on like there's a conversation with with the maid with blight's maid elaine and she really knows what to say to get elaine to trust and open up to her and for someone who seems so reliant on that that horrible etiquette book she certainly knows then what to do to sort of manipulate somebody into into saying it where do you think she might have learned this i think with signa one of her biggest strengths is that she reads people very well and she's always looking at social cues and it's part of always trying to fit in But she, even when she goes to like shake Percy's hand in the beginning, she's looking at his face for his reaction and is like, oh, maybe that was too much cordial pressure. 
you know, she's always looking around for those cues. And though she says really dumb things like to Blythe, she kind of misspeaks upon initially meeting her and pisses Blythe off. But Cigna is aware of it instantly. Like as soon as she makes that mistake, she is very much aware of it. So when she's going into that conversation with Elaine, she's using the reference point of her her old, her previous, now deceased uncle um, and how he would treat the the help and how they would respond to him. And she's trying to do the exact opposite of that and to do something that would lower somebody's defenses to try to get in. So although she doesn't... <laughs> She has some things to learn still about about interactions and what she should or shouldn't say to people or how strong she comes on. She's very good at social cues and always looking out for them. One moment I felt that we really needed was the moment when Death explains to Signa why the people around her were dying. And I thought I'd made a note of the page, but I haven't. Which is... I can't believe I didn't make a note of that page. But it's when she is... He explains to her why these people have died. And she's saying, well, you know, my grandma died and then this person died and this person died. And it's like, well, this person was stealing money that you were going to inherit. And this person, they were really cruel to you. So I couldn't sit back and watch them do that. They're actually not very nice people. And then she's bit like, oh, well, what about my grandma? It's like, your grandma was old. It's sort of <laughs> not, not in a cruel way, but he kind of gave her the dignity of kind of a decent death. And that seems like a real turning point. She's a bit like, oh, you actually kind of have a point there. And she sees that death has been looking after her in a nice way. And he's not this thing that's following her around and just killing everybody looking after her. He's he's the one looking after her. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a big turning point in their relationship where she starts to realize that the perception she had of him is different than how he actually is and what has actually happened. And all of her life, she's just wanted somebody to connect to and to feel like there was somebody there for her and to know that there has been somebody in the background who in his own way has been helping her. I think really means a lot to her, although she's not exactly sure what to think of it at the moment because she still has all these conflicted feelings, but it is the initial turning point, I think, of their relationship. I think that she needed that moment to kind of Mm -hmm. start to realize that he's not that bad. And to just have it out with him, too, to be like, this is what's bothering me. This is what has always bothered me about you. Like, why are you like this? And for him to be like, well, here's why. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe you have a point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she seems, her attitude towards him definitely changes after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right with the fact that she needed to have it out with him. Yeah, it was it was a long time coming. I feel like we need to sort of talk about the fire in the library. So firstly, does Signa not find it odd that no one has mentioned a library before? The library seems like a very, it's hushed a bit the fact there is a library there Silas takes her to the the library I think that it's just like so many people have lived in this house and there's so many rooms in it that it's just something nobody really thinks to mention like hey also we have a library and when she does discover it it's like you're right kind of this like 
mystical place just because it is rumored to be haunted. So people don't really go in there very much, but the rest of the house is also rumored to be haunted. So it's not really a super focal point for anybody to be like, and also the library when they think that there's like Lillian wandering the halls as it is. The fact that there's a spirit in the library that just spends all his days reading, that's, I love that. Thaddeus, aww. (laughs) I feel like so many of us, like if we had a chance to just, okay, you can die and move on, or you could just stay here and read all the books that are on your TBR. I feel like a lot of us would stay to catch up on some of the reading that we put off. I think I'd be quite happy to just be a spirit, just having a never-ending tbr yeah it's like mm-hmm. cool water stones or something <laughs> that would yeah, be that's thaddeus that would be brilliant and he loves it i felt so bad for him when uh, he was so sad with the books and they caught on fire yeah but the whole in hindsight the whole thing is quite weird because silas is with signa and he's not supposed to know that she can talk to spirits because Silas is just an ordinary human person. But then obviously we he's not because we find out that he's deaf. So how did that happen? What happened in the library? Was he there just like, oh, I'm I'm not actually listening. I can't actually hear. You know, I'm just casually here looking around the library. But obviously he can. <laughs> yeah, no, he for sure was able to see and know everything going on and was just ignoring it. I think retrospectively, it was probably an important moment for him to like step aside anyway, because Cigna has always believed that spirits are all the same. They're all like these awful, terrifying, scary monsters that should just pass on. And then she meets Thaddeus and she's like, oh my gosh, like he's so helpful. He's so nice. And he's just stuck here because he wants to read. Like, how cool is that? And it's the first moment where she realizes that not all spirits are necessarily the same, although there is a moment with Thaddeus later in the book where he possesses her out of his out of his anger. And maybe they are kind of all a little bit dangerous, but it's the first moment where she's sort of accepting or more accepting of her powers and her ability to see spirits and communicate with them and a little bit more relaxed with it. Although like yeah, he wouldn't have been able to do anything anyway because he's pretending to be Silas. So he's fully aware of everything going on. He's just playing dumb. It must be quite nice for him as well because he wants to teach her how to use her skills and develop and grow into her powers. So for him to see her kind of embracing them, talking to Thaddeus must be quite nice. You can imagine him there a bit like a sort of proud, not parent, that's weird, but... Like a mentor. Mentor's better. Let's let's say mentor. Like a proud mentor pretending not to not to look. And thinking, oh, like my little bird is growing up. Yeah, I think that for him it's just like he knows that she feels good with these powers, that she is more herself, that she is more open. And he hates watching her on this other high society side of things where she's pretending to be this different person and putting on a front. So I think anytime she's leaning into her powers and just leaning into who she wants to be, I think is is very, it's a it's a good moment for him. I was so shocked by that reveal. Thank you. So shocked. <laughs> yeah, I, that that was that was quite impressive. There were a couple of oh my god, what moments, and that was one of them. 
Another one was when Percy died, but then he wasn't actually <laughs> dead. He was just very, very mm-hmm. badly poisoned. But I was I was reading the book. Charlotte finished the book ahead of me as so I was reading the book. And I was like, oh my God, what? Percy's dead? It's like, oh no, no, he's not. He's just very badly poisoned. <laughs> but yeah, this was a real oh my God moment. And was Silas always going to be death? In this version of the book, yes. I Like I said earlier, there's some, like over the years, there, there have been some different versions of Belladonna, but none that felt right. So once I figured out the actual story I wanted to tell and the one that felt right, it was always Silas and death were the same person. So then when Silas says, because she starts Cygna starts asking Silas, why are you doing this? What's in it for you? If you get caught, you're going to be in trouble. And she can't see a reason why he would. And he said, oh, I'm doing this for someone that I care about. And she's she does get jealous. She's like, oh, who is this mm-hmm. person you care about? But obviously, in hindsight, it's her because actually he's death. And he, that's why he's helping her. And there are no consequences because he's not actually a real person. But in <laughs> hindsight, it just clicks. It's like, oh, that's quite great, actually. Yeah, and in the meantime, it's another part of the mystery. Like, some people believed that he was Blythe's lover or that he was Marjorie's son and there to, like, she was the one that he was trying to protect. So I definitely, I needed to throw some suspicion onto Silas as well. So it all just kind of fit. Yeah, possibly Marjorie's son. We kind Mm -hmm. of, we did wonder. And his opinion of just do what you want and good and bad are all just a matter of perception was was quite cool because he has some, he has morals, but they're kind of weird morals. (laughs) Yeah, they're, they're a little, they're a little skewed, but at the same time, like he does have morals, like you say, and he can detect overall what is, categorically good and categorically bad but stuff that is kind of black and white like okay uh, Percy is trying to kill Blythe Blythe has a chance to live she has done nothing wrong Percy has already killed somebody and he's trying to kill his sister you have a chance to save Blythe if you take Percy's life sure you are taking somebody's life that's not a great thing so the morals are skewed there, but also you're saving Blythe. What do you do? So Signa makes the choice to save Blythe and take Percy's life. So her morals are kind of a little a little skewed, just like his. They fit very well together. They do. So speaking of the fact that Percy kills someone, I was so sure that Marjorie was the poisoner, which I think probably <laughs> is what you hoped people would think. I hope people would think everyone, like I gave everybody a motive. Byron was kind of the easy suspect. Marjorie was the not quite as easy suspect. Then there's Charlotte in the background who is making her like berry compotes. And she's very jealous about another, um, like another person coming into the season and another woman who is very affluential, has a lot of money. So she has that going for her. I wanted to give everyone a motive i was really really suspicious of charlotte but i couldn't work out why she'd want to poison lillian that that for me was the thing Mm -hmm. but for for her poisoning blythe a hundred percent i could see it because she's talking quite early on about 
about how she needs to make a match. And it's like, oh, Blythe was kind of the main target of the season. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, now you're here. People are going to like you. And then you see her later on in the garden when Signa goes and Charlotte's just there picking plants. It's like, why are you there? That just, to me, that didn't sit right. So I was, I was so suspicious of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't work. Yeah, Charlotte, Charlotte happens to live close by. She's on the opposite side of the garden. So that's why she was there. But it is very suspicious, especially in that moment. But still, why is she there? It's like... It, <laughs> should she be there like picking I mean she's not doing any harm but and she knew Signa mentioned as well that she knew stuff about plants anyway mm-hmm, but I couldn't mm-hmm. work out why she would have wanted to hurt Lillian but that's why Marjorie made sense with Lillian <laughs> I was thinking are Marjorie and Charlotte working together like I don't know it just when you find out it made it made a lot of sense that Percy wanted to kill Marjorie and poor Marjorie yeah, she really got the, the bad end of the stick there. She has had not a great, not a great life, not a great, a lot of things happened to her. Why do you think Percy would have, so Percy wants to kill Marjorie, but that doesn't work because Lillian drinks the tea. Why do you think he would have then gone for Blythe and not try to carry on with his original plan and kill Marjorie? Because he seemed to have a good relationship with Blythe, so... I can't, mm-hmm. and she wasn't a threat to him in the family, really, because it's not like Elijah was going to say, "Well, Percy, you can't have Grays," but somehow I'm going to find a way to give Grays to, say, Blythe's future husband, for example, if she mm-hmm. if she was courting someone for the season, that wasn't going to happen. So I can't quite work out why Percy did that. It's just, because- yeah, it, I, it, it's. It's mentioned somewhere in the book. He um he did it to try to he wanted a reason for his father to have to connect with him. So his father it didn't necessarily end up working because his father went into like a spiral when Lillian died. And then when Blythe started getting sick, Elijah started pulling a little bit closer to home just to like be there with her and he Percy wanted to have a chance to like bond with his father in literally the most like ridiculous, selfish way possible. He wanted Blythe's dying to bring them closer together so he could keep his, so he can get the, the business basically. So he can get his father on his good side. And the only reason that Elijah wasn't giving over the business to Percy wasn't because he knew Percy did anything wrong, but it was because all of his life, Elijah has been so deep in the business and gone for all these pivotal moments and gone for Lillian's death to the point where it has made him feel so guilty and he didn't want anybody else in his family to ever have that. So, which is why he didn't want to give it to Percy, which is why he didn't want to just give the business over to Byron. He didn't want anyone in his family to have that experience that he did and be so lost in work and the business that he forgot everything else that existed. And Signa tries to tell Percy this and I almost felt like he was going to be like, you know what, actually I'm sorry. And that he would have had that redemptive moment, but it's just, I think redemption for him was impossible. Wasn't it? It was too far gone. It was pretty far gone by that point. Yeah. And he just has, I mean, as I'm sure a lot of men 
do now, but especially in that period, just a lot of kind of misogyny. And he, yeah, he's not a great person. He is very image focused and that's about it. Some of it I don't blame him for because he seems very much a product of his time. But he's also got those insecurities, I guess, when he when he did realize. So they didn't want him to find out that Marjorie was his mom, did they? They wanted him mm-hmm. to think that it was Lillian. Right, because they didn't want anybody to ever find out because it would it would make Percy a bastard and he would lose so much of everything that he had. On page 265, let me just turn to that page. Marjorie gives Signor a warning where she says, I want you to be wise. All the men I've known were born with clever lies upon their tongues. They speak dishonesties or words sweeter than nectar to take the things they want. So obviously we're thinking, oh, she's talking about Elijah. But then we also find out that there's someone who has really upset her in the house and again you're supposed to think it's Elijah because of this conversation but I guess some of that warning is because of her experience with Percy because that's the what she wrote about in her journal isn't it when she tries to tell Percy the truth and it doesn't work she's definitely upset about Percy I think she still has a lot of love for Percy though in that moment she was definitely you were right she was definitely talking about Elijah um, just because, you know, she believed that he loved her as much as she loved him. And she had his child. So she believed that, you know, they were going to get married and they were going to have this life together. Um, but Elijah was very much a young, dumb boy and made some bad choices and some mistakes. And yeah, they ended up having this child that he didn't know about and rather than go back to Marjorie ever, he fell in love with Lillian and completely moved on to Lillian and just kind of let Marjorie go. So she was definitely talking about him because she was obviously not happy with that, with that choice and how it affected her. But I don't think things ended up too badly because her son is given a really good life and she's still able to be around I mean, I can't imagine many women like Lillian would have taken in their husband's love child and like loved that child as much as she seemed to love Percy. Yeah, Lillian is a great person. You know, I didn't get to explore her character very much in the book, but it's very clear that so many around her deeply, deeply cherished her. And yeah, she loved Percy like he was her own. You know, she in her mind, he was he was her child. It it's tough because like, is it great for Marjorie is definitely a question because she was not from a highly affluential family, but she was she was well off. She was fine. She could have had, you know, her pick of men to marry. But because she got pregnant and had this child, her family cast her out, which is very much a normal thing for that time. Um, And she lost a lot of her opportunities. Elijah Although he, you know, we would think now he should do this. He didn't have to, especially for the time he was, he did not have to take her in and take care of her, but he very much wanted to for Percy's sake and for Marjorie's sake. Cause you know, he knows that he made a mistake 
So she, yeah, she does get the the short end of the stick still, but I, for the ways that it could have turned out, it was fortunate. But of course, it must be super, super hard for Marjorie every day to exist, seeing Percy raised by somebody else, believing that somebody else is his mother when that is her child. And she has a very close view of, of that forever. And it could have gone so much worse, though, if he just kicked them if he'd just been like, no, not interested in taking any responsibility. I think Elijah did the best. Apart from marrying her, he did the best he could. Yeah, he he did what he could do without soiling anyone's reputation further, especially his own. Signa takes Percy to the apothecary shop because she comes up with an idea to help save Blythe. And... Percy didn't take to the woman behind the counter and didn't seem to want to go to the shop at all. And the woman in the shop didn't like Percy either. (laughs) Was that some foreshadowing that we could have maybe picked up on in hindsight? Um, Perhaps, yeah. The the shopkeep is definitely... I wouldn't say necessarily suspicious of him, but he has such a bad attitude when they go in and very clearly doesn't want to be there that the shopkeeper just is like, I don't like you. Like, you seem you seem like a jerk. As for foreshadowing, I yeah, maybe. I think it's just another glimpse, though, into Percy being so image focused. Like, oh, my gosh, it's going to be the end of our world if anybody sees us in the apothecary of all places. Speaking of foreshadowing. There was a moment that I picked up on, on page, on page 128, where she is playing chess with Elijah. Now, this is a point where I was really suspicious of Elijah. (laughs) And, oh, sorry, checkers, not chess. And she loses. And Elijah says to her, those who play a defensive game of checkers will always lose. And I thought, is that some foreshadowing there with Elijah? <laughs> but actually, I don't think it was with Elijah. But I do feel like the more proactive Signa becomes in in doing things and not just sitting and waiting for things to happen and kind of playing the defensive game, she actually starts to get shit done. Especially as she goes mm-hmm. through and finds stuff in, in Marjorie's room. Yeah, I really loved writing that scene with Elijah. That was the first scene where I was like, oh, I actually really enjoy your character. Like he has made a ton of mistakes, but he is owning up to all of them. He doesn't hide them in the same way that I think a lot of people would hide their mistakes, you know, especially such big mistakes. He is trying to change and he is very much aware of all of his past sins. And yeah, that was definitely the first scene where I was like, oh, you're so fun, Elijah. I like you. I felt really sorry for him because he's in mourning for his wife when we first meet him. And I mean, clearly he's not doing very well. And by the time we leave him in the book, he's grieving, but he's actually come out of his shell and he's spending time with Blythe, like they're having breakfast together. And just out of interest, did you research grieving processes or anything in order to kind of round out Elijah's character and make him a bit more nuanced? Um, No, I didn't research anything. I think that... You know, everybody grieves in their own way. I've had, especially over the past two years, a, a ton of deaths in my family, um, like an absolutely absurd amount. I don't know why they're all at the same time. 
and I think that out of everything I I've seen firsthand is just it's just that like everybody has a different process. Everybody deals with death differently. Um, Blythe's looks very different than Elijah's. You know, Elijah turns to alcohol and trying to forget. Um, some people do the opposite and they lean in and very much look for all the, the stories of that person and all everything that can make them feel connected again. So there's just all these different, there's no right, there's no wrong way to, to grieve. And that is just, that's how he does it. But so end the sort of talking about Belladonna on a high, I've read I've read a lot, obviously, um, and I've read stuff that's gone from like pure erotica to books that have just very light flirtations in. But props to you. No book has ever done it for me quite like this did. Like it, <laughs> it, it got me a little bit excited. And I mentioned that one line earlier, but one bit that really did was a particular few lines that Death reads, uh, that Death says, like, I have waited for you for millennia, Signifaro. Since the dawn of this earth, I have waited. You are mine and I am yours. And together, this world is ours. Just, oh my God. Not even like the sexy stuff that happens between them. Just some of the stuff he says, like, man, he knows how to talk to a woman. My God. Oh my gosh. I know. His lines are so good. (laughs) And I don't say that as like the author, like, oh my gosh, I'm so good for writing those lines. I mean, like he is a character is just so smooth. I mean, you are good for writing those lines. Let's be honest. <laughs> you can own it. <laughs> no, he, oh my, oh my God. There were so many lines. There were points where Charlotte was like, I can see some pages that would have, that would have got you worked up. But she, this was a point where she finished the book and I hadn't quite. So she, and also because she read it on Kindle, she could, didn't have quite the pages. I was like, oh, is this the bit you mean? <laughs> oh no, wait, is this the bit you mean? Because when stuff progresses with them, it progresses fast and, uh-huh. Just, oh my yeah oh my god like yeah it's not, well thank you <laughs> not even about like they've, the sexy stuff but just just all of it the light touches no they've been my favorite yes they've been my favorite couple to write they are they're so fun they're so fun because they're just so drawn to each other in like an inexplicable way you know it's yeah I love them so much this is the love affair that we all want <laughs> thank you <laughs> oh no that's my pleasure I mean obviously as you can tell it really was and so thank you so much for talking to us we have Fox Love that is coming out next what else do you have coming up uh, Fox Love is just what I'm working on right now And then any other projects will be, you know, after I turn in this, the edits for these books, which are taking me forever, but I am knee deep in edits for Fox Love right now. We're nearing the finish line. And once that's out of my hands, yeah, I'm excited to work on the next project. But first I just got to, I got to get this one out of the way. I saw a very interesting fan theory online and you might tell me that you can't say anything because that seems to be author speak for everything. But as I showed you before we started recording, I do have the fairy loot edition, which is one of the most stunning things mm-hmm. I've ever seen. But some coasters came with the fairy loot. There's a Belladonna, there's a Fox Club, but there are two others. And I've seen 
fan theories online that you're going to round off the series and make it four books. Is that true? Or are people just speculating? I, I have seen that theory too. Mm. Um, it is It is speculation. If there were any other books in the series ever, they would probably not have those names. So that is just purely, I think, fairy loot. Just they wanted the four coasters. But I have seen that theory and I have enjoyed it. I thought that was so funny. I had to ask you about it. <laughs> A lot of people are. I get tagged in that fairly often. It's funny. I thought you would. I, I was expecting either no or I can't really talk about it, which is basically yes. <laughs> so time time for the secret question. In the book, Signa, there are balls and Signa goes to a ball and she has men wanting to be on her dance card. So if you went to a ball, oh my gosh. who would you have on your dance card? Now the rules are you have to pick three people <laughs> and they have to be fictional. So fictional characters on your dance oh, card. Oh, that's the twist. Ooh, okay. If you need a moment to think about it, we could edit out any pauses. But I, oh my gosh, I liked I'm this question at- before. So, yeah, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now to be like, who who would I choose? Oh, okay. So one, (laughs) I mentioned earlier that I love anime and one would be Lloyd from Spy Family. Who else? Okay, Lloyd from Spy Family. And then maybe, maybe Jax from Once Upon a Broken Heart. Okay, one more, one more, one more. See, there's a lot of options. Can I mean, can I choose death? You can choose death. You don't have, you don't. I would choose, yeah. Yeah. Death. Okay, but hang on. Do I want to lock in these answers? <laughs> it's tough. I'm going to lock in death. I'm going to lock in Lloyd. I really like Jax, but is there anybody out there who I would prefer to dance with over Jax? See, I like dark hair, and both both boys I've picked so far are blondes. Hmm. Damon would kill me, although, like, he'd be an option. Man, what are all my favorite shows ever? It's a tough question, isn't it? It is so hard. Mm. Okay, hang on. But this is why it was not in the questions that we sent you, because... It needed to be semi-spontaneous. Like I said, you can have a little bit of time to think about it, but I wouldn't wouldn't have wanted you to be thinking about it all day going, hmm, but what about this person? No, I I need to lock in my final answer, but I I don't think I can lock in Jax. You might have to. You can't think of anyone better. Oh my gosh. There is something about Jax. There is definitely something about him. There is. I mean, I guess he does have blue hair at one point, so that's not blonde. I'm saying there's something about Jack, especially as I'm listening to the the audiobooks at the minute. Not um not once upon a broken heart, but the the sequel ballad. No, I'm no. I need to go and pick up my copy from Waterstones. Oh, okay. We've had a lot of problems with it over in the UK, but no. Oh, um, I know. <laughs> no, legendary. So I finished Caravan. Oh, okay. Because I'm I'm quite liking them on audiobook. Yeah, I, I like I like the audiobooks as well. You know, I'm gonna I probably have to lock in Jax. I think that yeah, I can't think of anything. I can't think of anyone else better. Yeah, okay, those are <laughs> those are my three. I'm locking them in. See, so if we get you back on for Fox Club, I'm gonna ask you're gonna be prepared for that question, and we're gonna ask you something totally different. 
and that will throw you again. Oh man, <laughs> man, because yeah, I'll, I'll come, I'll come prepared for that. Oh one. no, see, well, I don't know what we'll pick. Man, but we'll have something else. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll forget. Maybe you'll forget that you were gonna change it. Maybe. Well, I've, I've, I've come up with something else clever in the meantime. We have like two go-to <laughs> questions at the minute, depending on what kind of books people have written, Anna, and this is one of them. <laughs> so funny, yeah, man. I'm like, my favorite character. One of my favorite characters is. <laughs> All Might from My Hero Academia, but I wouldn't want to dance with him. That'd be weird. Yeah, okay. I'm locking that in. Also, Jax is going to look so good on your arm at a dance. Right? I know. He really would. Boy's going to have moves. (laughs) Yeah, he's... And that'll put me off picking Jax because I can't dance, so... I need a man who's who's okay. I feel like him and Lloyd from Spy Family are probably like aesthetically look pretty similar but they have such different personalities yeah yeah okay those are them those are them you seemed that was hard that was really tough (laughs) and i'm still i'm gonna be thinking about this for like the rest of the day and be like oh was that actually my answers like the only one i'm a hundred percent confident about is lloyd Death is great, but he's also so infatuated with Cigna that it's like, would he just kill me if we dance? Maybe. Maybe. And then Jax is just like hot. So he's fine. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) So where can we find you online? Where can people go to follow you? Yeah, I have pretty much every social media account out there. I wouldn't recommend following me on Twitter because I never post. Um, I don't like Twitter. Instagram is where I actually spend the majority of my time. And if you want like the most time sensitive updates or anything like that, I'd recommend following me on Instagram at author Adlin Grace. I'm under the same name at TikTok, although I just pretty much post like aesthetic reels about books. I don't really do much interesting content on TikTok. I'm thinking about starting um, like writing vlogs on TikTok, just like updates of while I'm working or drafting or editing different things. But right now I would recommend that you follow me on Instagram. We will put a link to your Instagram account in our episode description so that people can easily find it. Thank you. You are so welcome. And just thank you. Thank you for coming in and talking Balladonna with us today. Yeah, they- Mostly me. <laughs> thank, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun, especially to get to talk about spoilers and stuff. I, I love when, you know, people have read the book and I get to just be like, tell me everything. Let's talk about everything. It's so much fun. Well, what's really cool is that me and Charlotte get to, so we sort of, or should we buddy read everything? So we, any theories that we have, we have already discussed before we bring it to the table with you. And so, yeah, to then be able to talk to you about it is just the best thing. Like for us, it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to actually talk to you about all of our theories and spoilers and everything. It's just, it's, it's amazing. It's really fun on the author side of it too, especially I'll say like, this is my first murder mystery that I've done and like, Hey, who did you suspect? What part of the book are you in? That's my favorite thing to like bug anybody I know who's reading it or who has read it just tell me everything I still don't trust Charlotte (laughs) oh that's what I meant to ask you as well so Cigna's friends kind of I'm going to use that very loosely because I don't think they really are uh how do (laughs) how do their seasons go or do we find out in Fox Club 
We have that to look uh, Fox to. Love actually, if, yeah, Fox Love takes place during the season. So I can't say anything yet. Okay, so we can look forward to updates. I mean, I think Charlotte's a, a mm-hmm. bit of a dickhead. So maybe I'm being harsh on her. I don't trust her. I still don't. <laughs> She's hiding something. It's funny. I get a lot of, yeah, a lot of people are like, I absolutely love Charlotte. Well, we have more of Charlotte and other people are like, what is Charlotte up to? She seems suspicious. She does. <laughs> I thought that for ages. She seems like she's very polarizing, but we will definitely see more of her in Fox Club. Probably I'm going to finish Fox Club and be like, oh, I gave Charlotte a hard time. She actually wasn't that bad. She wasn't hiding anything, but for now. Or I maybe she's terrible. Her. I guess you'll find I out. Know, I'm, I'm going to struggle <laughs> to wait to find out because this is one of the. I've loved this so much. I, uh, I can't tell you. you. Anyway. At the risk of taking up any more of your time by just fangirling at you all night. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Adeline. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast. And if you like what we're doing, please rate us and please subscribe. Also, check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. I've been Charlotte, she's been Lauren, and today we've been turning pages with Adeline Grace. Save some berries and we'll see you next time.